and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Bow your head with me. Let's just pray and ask God to bless our time. God, we come to you in the matchless name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Bread of life, fill our hungry souls today. Your words will satisfy us. They're the only words that will satisfy us. Father, you are life to us, so I just ask that you help me preach the truth that I just might disappear behind the text, the meaning of that text. And Holy Spirit, help us now to focus and just get the truth of these verses down in our heart. It is in the name of Jesus Christ. We all prayed and said, Amen. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you please stand with me in reverence for the word of God being read aloud this morning. Our passage today comes from the gospel of John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. This is the word of God. All right, you may be seated. There's just so much awesomeness packed into this set of verses right here. This is going to be great. I promise you that. If you've got something to take notes with, take notes with uh, that. And the Apostle John presents this healing of this man as the third sign of eight signs he'll give us in the book. They're all miracles, but John calls them signs that is going, he's going to tell us about. So to get some perspective, if you remember back just before Easter, we studied verse 1 of chapter 5, and that's as far as we got. Uh, verse 1, because of this, it's a big switch from chapter 4 to chapter 5. This is a whole new section of Scripture there that the Apostle John is going to write. A couple of key things we need to remember. One is that the phrase, after this, doesn't mean right after chapter 4. It means a while after. We just don't know how long. It's an unknown amount of time. And in that time, things have begun to get more difficult for everyone in Israel. There had been this uprising from the Jewish nationalists called the Zealots. The Romans had put that revolt down with extreme malice. And in doing that, the Romans had also cracked down on the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. 71 men who made up this council ran both the political and the religious aspects of life. But when the revolt had occurred, the Romans had been stripped 
I mean, the Romans had stripped the Sanhedrin of their power. Now, if you put yourselves in the place of this council, they were desperate to hold on to power. So they watched like a hawk for any attempts by anyone in the Jewish world that might rock the boat politically. You with me? They had already had their eyes on Jesus because of he had large crowds following him. Miracle after miracle. He was preaching, doing these miracles, and he had this authority like no one else. He preached with this authority. And now Jesus was back in Jerusalem from Cana, and he had been there before. He had cleaned out the temple when he had been there before. Money changers, animals, uh, and the apostle John told us in chapter 2 of John that large numbers of people start to follow him. There are big crowds. Also, it was at that time that John the Baptist, this new time, this in-between time that John the Baptist had had his head removed by Herod at the request of a dancing girl. That's another story. Just a few more things before we dive in. First thing, whenever we see Jesus in Jerusalem, he's usually kind of butting heads with these uh, Jewish leaders. Now, you'll see in your Bible, it just sometimes refers to them as the Jews. It doesn't mean all the Jewish Jews, it means the Jewish leaders. But you're going to see this here, Jesus standing up to these guys, these religious leaders, all the way to his, to his death. We'll see that this, it's this anger that Jesus provokes in these leaders that leads to Jesus' suffering and then execution and then death by the Romans carried out at the, the will of the Sanhedrin. But Jesus didn't seem to be in conflict with the Jewish people, at least not until right at the very end of his life, like the last day. So don't lose sight of the fact of this. The Jewish leaders and the Romans are secondary causes as God uses their sinful actions for his ultimate providence. I'll take a break, you write this down. You need to get this down, this is huge. The Jewish leaders and the Romans are secondary causes and God uses their sinful actions for his ultimate providence. Now remember God is sovereign. Can I get an amen? God is sovereign. He is in total control, and yet he is allowing these people to carry out their sinful actions. Are you with me? But at the very same time, God is using those sinful actions those evil guys are doing for his plan or what we call his providence. This is at the heart of Reformed doctrine, this truth. The way we see this doctrine played out all throughout the Bible is when people do bad things, God uses it for the good of his people and his glory. That's crazy. It's just crazy to think about it. The crazy thing that makes smoke start just coming out of my ears is that God uses it all. Everything for our good and his glory. Now we see this in the Old Testament, don't we? Remember Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat? Anybody remember the story of Joseph? Thanks, both of you. And then he is sold into slavery by his own brothers into another country, jailed for years by an employer for a false charge of rape. 
forgotten by his friends, and yet it's the story of Joseph that we see God use to bring about a plan to save an entire people and nation from famine. At the end of the story, you'll remember Joseph had summed up this reform doctrine that we hold to when he says this to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Think about it. Jesus is suffering on the cross, his death. That's the ultimate story of evil people, meaning evil to God, but God using it for good and for his providence and his purpose. But that brings up the second thing we'll notice over and over the next few times we study this together. In God's sovereignty and in following uh, of his father's plan, Jesus will act with intentionality. With what he says, who he says it to, When and where he says it, there are no accidents here. Zero. Look at John 5, verse 1 and 2. Let's unpack this. After this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Now, we don't know. We're just not told what festival this is. John doesn't say what it is. Uh, There's speculation on what it is. Maybe it's one of the Passovers. It's just not in this text, so it must not be important. But what we do want to know in that there is one of the major festivals, that the city itself would be packed body to body. You with me? Interesting side note, critics of the Bible who often claim that Jesus is not a real historical figure and this is all made up, often embarrass themselves because they don't know the scripture for one. Uh, But they'll make false claims like this. Well, this couldn't be real because this pool, uh, Bethesda, is unknown and it's made up. But the problem is the pool is known. Uh, I heard it not recent, uh, not too recent, uh, but a while back, uh, archaeologists going, no, we, there, we don't know where that is. But it's a well-known archaeological site discovered in the mid-19th century and excavated thoroughly in the 1960s. And you could go see it today. We'll find that it's the Apostle John's description here down to the exact number of the colonnades that surrounded it. We see it. Here's what it looks like today, by the way. There's kind of really two pools that are there. Maybe someday Bentry will do a trip to Jerusalem. Wouldn't that be cool? I like that. We'll go to the real one for sure. Uh, here, two pools like that. Here's the renderings of what it looks. I mean, this is the, the part that it looks like right now. It's not like a swimming pool all level. It's uh, multiple levels. Now, here's some renderings of what it looks like in Jesus' time. Bethesda over here, you can see. You see where the temple mount is, the, the temple itself, the crucifixion site. This is the Antonia uh, fortress where the Romans would have had all their people. Do you see how close it is? The temple mount is right there. The point is that it's not very far from the temple where all these people would have come for the giant festival. Now, let's take a look at verse 3. Within these lay a large number of disabled, blind, and paralyzed. This was a crowded area in those pools, but not crowded with the masses that were visiting Jerusalem for the feast. 
No, this is where the disabled, blind, lame, paralyzed were. This is almost like a hospital ward. Now, if you were one who had a disability like this, you had very little worth in that society because you couldn't work. And in some cases, you couldn't even beg because you had no place to get to to beg. You had to lay by this place right here. And if your family was poor, this is where you hung out And you, if you were disabled. Now, notice something strange if you haven't seen it yet. Jesus appears in this story by himself, alone. No big crowds, none of the disciples. Now, we don't know why. His disciples must have been just a few yards away at the temple. Thousands were following him at this point. But Jesus, at least for this afternoon, had slipped away from the crowds on this Sabbath and blended in and went to a place that you may not expect. Instead, Jesus goes to where the hurting people are. Whoo! This is not what the sermon's about, but I want you to notice. Jesus goes to where the hurting people are. Now, I think this says a lot about Jesus. Because what we're going to see in a few minutes here is that this sign, this miracle we're going to examine, like previous two signs we read about in John, says something much more deep about Jesus than we've read about up to this point. Jesus goes to where the hurting people are. He goes to a place that able-bodied people don't go because let's be clear, most people don't want to see suffering. They don't want to be around hurting people like that. Now let me just take a moment here to address something that you might be wondering about. Two things. First, why are all these disabled people around these two pools? And two, you may have noticed if you are reading along with your CSB or ESV, English Standard Version, in many of the modern translations that we have, there is no verse 4 in your Bible. Now look at that. Now you may have it, you may not. Here's the missing verse in uh, a translation that has it. The New King James Version. <clears throat> Waiting for the moving of the water for an angel went down to a certain time, at a certain time, into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, why take this verse out of the newer, better translations that we have? Well, because these translations we have are more accurate. Now, you have an accurate thing in your, your lap. Here's what I mean. Compared to earlier days, like when the King James Version was, was translated, we now have identified older and more accurate Greek manuscripts for the Bible. Back in the day of the King James Version being translated from Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, translators didn't have access to the oldest and best manuscripts. You with me? By the way, this is a topic for another time, but that Bible that you hold in your lap there is by far the most uh, reliable ancient text in the world. Over 5,000 would be a stack of about that high sources that it's from. A lot of you people think, hey, the Bible's just like a daisy chain, uh, like this was uh, translated from the last one in the 1960s and then, then in the 1940s. No, they go back to the original text there. Now, what scholars have found is the earliest and best manuscripts that we have in Greek, 
This verse number four is not in those. So the best translations don't include verse four or they put a bracket around it. So what do you do with that? Some translators chose to show verse four with brackets around it in the text. You might see that in your Bible right there. Uh, and then have a little footnote that says it's not in the original text. Other translations like the CSB or ESV uh, that we generally use here to preach from tend to put those verses as a footnote at the bottom of the page. They still are there. Now we think that verse 4 got added into more modern translations in some of the newer Greek manuscripts because it was a translator's note at the bottom. You see what I mean? Knowing why the disabled people, why they were waiting there. In other words, it's good to know why these people were waiting for this and why they were waiting as a footnote or with brackets. At any rate, verse 4 should not be uh, considered part of Scripture. Now, this is important. It's good to know the information of what they were thinking. Back to the story. All these people are there because of folklore or superstition. And it had begun to say that people were being healed because an angel would come down, touch the waters, or stir the waters. It was invisible to everybody. But this was found nowhere in the Old Testament. And it's really more closely aligned with paganistic beliefs. Now, we know the water was reddish in color because it stained the rocks around that. We see that now. Had those pools, the ruins we find now have red stains on them. In a very real sense, what you had there was a spring-fed natural mineral pool. And from time to time, a large amount of bubbles would come up and would go blah, 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 like natural pools do. You like my sound effects? Blah, 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 blah. And so they thought they, it came to be known, well, there's an angel just got in there. And it, it was really this, these bubbles coming up from underneath. Now, as the spring would surge and the bubbles would come up, it would appear that something supernatural had disturbed the water. That's why the superstitious stories about an angel in the water had started to circulate. Because <clears throat> people want hope. Now, why go to all the effort to explain all of that stuff to you? Because all these disabled people that had gathered around the pools had placed their faith, not in God, but in angels, in some supernatural force that was not part of God's promises in Scripture at all. We see that, don't we? Uh, uh, People all over the world, we see it today, flock to places that there are stories where you could get healed. If you just drink this water, you'll be healed. If you just stand on this rock with one foot and say a prayer, God will heal you. That kind of false teaching is more in line with paganism and some forms of, of Roman Catholicism. Now, the reason I mention this to you is that These man-made stories about the angel going into the water and going down uh, and someone gets in there and is healed. Um, This is, uh, they all share something very similar. It's that if you go and do something, then God will take notice and maybe heal you or maybe not. Contrast that with what actually happens in the story. The guy doesn't have to go anywhere. Jesus 
comes to him. Do you see that? So Jesus blending into the crowd by, by himself on Sabbath. Now that's a Saturday. He goes down among the people and out of the hundreds and hundreds of people laying there, he singles this one dude out. Look at verse five with me. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. Now that's a long time to be disabled. Really? It's a long time for anything. I mean, that's longer than the life expectancy of the people of that age. We don't know if this guy has been at this pool for 38 years or simply disabled that long. However, it seems to indicate uh, that he's been there for 38 years seeking a cure from this false thing that they're following. And, and like the crowd of other disabled, blind, lame, paralyzed people, they were all placing their hope in something that could heal them that was really just superstition. But that's all the hope they have. Jesus walks up to this one man of all the hundreds. Like the story of the Samaritan woman, Jesus chooses the one out of the many, doesn't he? This is just another example of God's sovereignty in who he saves, when he saves, how he saves. But unlike the story of the Samaritan woman, we aren't told anything about the total consequences of this man's encounter with Jesus. We're going to look at it over the next coming times together, but we're never told if he is giving, given saving faith to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord like the woman at the well. However, I would be willing to bet there were many, many others who came to believe in Jesus in faith on the basis of this man's testimony. We're just not told about the man. All right, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Do you remember the paralytic man in Mark 2 that his friends opened the hole in the house and let him down? Tell me if you remember that. You remember that? Yeah, there's a big crowd in the house and his friends let him down with ropes there. And Jesus heals the guy. But notice that's not the case here. The man has no friends, has no family that were told of at least. Jesus picks this one dude out, one guy out of all the disabled people laying around the pool who wanted desperately to be healed. Jesus looked at the guy laying there and asked him, do you want to get well? I have to laugh when I hear this question, this dude hearing the question, like, what do you think? Like, look around, guy. Do you want to get well? What kind of question is that? Do you want to be healed? Of course he does, right? Maybe not. Like maybe he doesn't even see Jesus coming up. I just picture this. Suddenly this able-bodied guy is standing over him, looking down at him, saying, hey, do you want to get healed? Do you want to be well? Now this snaps the dude's attention right to Jesus, doesn't it? The man looks up at Jesus and says, what do you mean? Do I want to get well? If you think about it, Jesus' question really was a good one. First, it got the man's attention. The guy is focused probably on seeing if the bubbles are in the water to see if it's, it's moving. They had been, that had been his life's purpose. He always kept his eyes on this water, right? But his attention was not something that could really get him well. His attention was on the wrong thing. Second, Jesus' has questioned to this man got him to really focus on his true need. 
Third, Jesus communicates his love. How? Well, watch this man's response to Jesus in verse 7. Fascinating. Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. The guy says, it's just simply not fair. The guy points out what he thinks is his real need. He says, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred. The man laying there looks up at Jesus and says, if you want to help me, This is what I need. Could this be right here how we view Jesus when he offers to help us? Now, we know the end of the story, but this guy doesn't know yet. He really doesn't know what Jesus is offering, does he? He is assuming the only way to be helped is that Jesus will sit down with him and help him move into the pool. When the pool is stirred, that will be what helps him most. And yet, here's the God who who created everything, including this pool, standing right next to it. The God who created the universe is standing there. The lame man doesn't realize the real power is not just in Jesus, but Jesus is the real power. Somebody say amen. The, The lame man doesn't realize that he has his eyes on the wrong thing. That could heal him. He's looking for healing. In all the wrong places. You know I want to sing that song right now. Don't you? (laughs) Don't you? He expects to find it in the waters. Of the pool of Bethesda. But now. He's face to face. With the only source of living water. That has the power. To heal his deepest infirmities. And yet he won't see it. And I would argue that he can't see it. Because he's not given life. He's not been given faith from the Holy Spirit. At least at this point. Let me ask you a question. Are you like this man? Do you say Jesus I want to be healed. I do want your help. But your help is going to have to look like this thing. That I have planned out for you. Like you might think uh, you know what the problem is, but in reality, you're missing the big thing that God wants to do in your life. We have these thoughts of how God can and should help us. So we pray things like this. Uh, Jesus, if you will just sit down here by me and work the plan that I have for you, then I think you might be able to help me. Come on now. Like we don't understand What Jesus could do for us. Here, write this down. The lame man's expectations of what Jesus could do for him were limited to what he believed was possible. The lame man's expectations of what Jesus could do for him were limited to what he believed was possible. Are you getting what I'm saying? The man has this low view of Jesus and what Jesus can do for him. Jesus, if you'll just take care of me by doing what I want you to do, then maybe, just maybe, I think you might could help me. Well, Jesus knows what this man needs, doesn't he? He's God. So Jesus says this in verse 8. 
Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Jesus gives him the command to get up. Now, I want you to notice something here. At other times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even John, when Jesus heals someone of some physical condition, he sometimes, that sometimes he associates that with the faith that that person has also been given to that person by God. So in other words, they exercise their faith and they're healed. But here, it's different. And I think that's the reason the Apostle John is highlighting this as the third sign of this particular healing. There's no talk of faith on the man's part. Jesus just gives the command. Just a little side note here, but a powerful one. This is just a little foreshadowing. Oh, I want to preach on this part right here so bad, but this is just a little foreshadowing of what we're going to preach about later in this chapter when Jesus will say to all those in their graves, get up, walk. By the way, that day is set in the future and we're getting closer every day. In other words, when the sun sets on tonight, we have one day less before Jesus returns. Amen? I don't know if you got that. Like there's one day less. All right, now jump down to verse 25. We've got to look at it for just a moment. Jesus' words here, he says, Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. Who hear will live. Now that's powerful. What verses 7 is foreshadowing is also Jesus calling us to life in him right now. He says that day is coming and is already here. It's what Jesus had told Nicodemus, right? He says, you must be born again, born from the dead. You see, Jesus' commands have the power to wake not just the physically dead, but the spiritually dead too. Which is what we are before Christ Jesus calls us to salvation. We're dead. The reason Jesus has this power is that one, he is God, the son, the second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But it's also that his human nature is in perfect relationship with the Holy Spirit who does the waking of the dead with God the Father that predestines us to be children of God. Okay, back to verse 8. Jesus gives this command. Get up, he told them. Pick up your mat and walk. What are the three things Jesus commands this guy to do? Think super basic. He says, one, get up. In other words, you're lying down. People that can walk, they don't need to be lying down in the middle of the day. So get up, especially here. This place, this pool, it's for the lame. It's for the sick. This is not where you're supposed to be. So Jesus says, get up. But what is the second command? What's the second thing Jesus commands him to do? Pick up. Pick up what? Pick up that mat you are lying on. Pick up that thing that has held you for 38 years. It has held you. Now, I want you to hold it. Do you see the symbolism here? That mat used to hold the man because of his condition. Then, what is the third thing that Jesus commands the man to do? Walk. Walk. In other words... Start your journey out of this place of the sick and carry that mat with you. 
leave this place. But then check this out. First half of verse 9. Instantly, the man got well. Praise God. Picked up his mat and started to walk. Instantly. Before the man can do anything, he's healed. The man is in his full strength, both his upper body and his lower body. For 38 years, this man had been held by that mat. But now he holds that mat and he's walking away from where the sick people are. And notice, it's not like the guy is described as staggering off in poor health. Like he's not able to walk very good. Jesus like shoving him along, like going on. No, he's able to carry a load and walk. Jesus tells him to carry his mat to show the healing of the man's physical body was complete. The man leaves behind the place where the sick are. By the way, again, this is a picture of Jesus calling someone to life in him. Get up, pick up your mat, follow me, or pick up your cross. So you see it, don't you? Let me just take a break here for a moment as your pastor and talk to you about healings and miracles. Tons of false teaching around this. Can Jesus heal? Yes. Does he heal? Yes. And no. I don't mean to be wishy-washy on you, but check this out. The answer is one way, no. He doesn't always heal. Even Christians, even people who pray and believe in faith that that he can heal. But yes, in that we, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, will be healed completely and totally in heaven with our new body. Someone say amen on that. So why doesn't Jesus in this day heal every person there? Why doesn't Jesus heal every Christian every time we ask in faith? Well, let me answer it this way. When we saw Jesus heal the royal official son in chapter 4, and then again we see this healing, And when we see in the other gospels, Jesus healing hundreds and hundreds of people, we start to think the main purpose of Jesus coming to earth was to heal people physically. But that's only a secondary reason. Remember, Jesus says his main reason for coming to earth as God was to take on the flesh of man who was to seek and save the lost. It's this this issue of why does Jesus choose, though, to heal some people back then and not others? And even more frustrating is why does God choose to heal some people now when we pray for them and not others? This becomes particularly frustrating when it's our son or our daughter or our parent or our friend. It's fine when you just hear about it. You go, oh, well, God heals sometimes and he doesn't. But when it's your child laying there dying, something I've studied a ton is in the 20th century, we saw the rise of what we could call the faith healers. It was a movement, especially from the 1920s to the 1970s primarily. And some of those guys are still around today, but mostly in other places like South America, in places like Africa. And they're pulling some of the same things. 
Some of these guys and girls that call themselves faith healers became some of the most popular people of the age. Quite literally, some of them would be more famous than the president or any athlete of the time. But what a close look at these movements reveals is that at is that most, if not all, it was total and complete sham. We know now that most of these faith healers simply tricked the public to coming to these massive tent rallies to get their money. I can't adequately describe how big this thing was back in the day. Some of those healing ministries would travel around with these giant circus tents, They would travel with a big group of men to put up these massive tents to hold these massive meetings. And these same men, these crews putting up the tent would then pose as the general public that would come and seek healing. These men who actually worked for false healing ministries play like they were one of the lame. You see? They would sit in wheelchairs and be on crutches and have fake bandages around their head and braces on their legs and white canes. They would pretend to be blind, you know, tapping their white cane, pretend to be deaf. And as the the faith healer would put their hand on and go, be healed, they were suddenly healed. It was magic. These ministries would literally pack dozens of wheelchairs and white canes and bandages and cast as part of their supplies along with their tent and chairs. And they would move from city to city to city, posing like they were paralyzed, blind, deaf, and they would be healed by the head of the ministry. And they would have their fake backstory all lined up. And in each city, they would pull this fake stuff off. Now, when the public saw this, They brought their real sick people, the real lame people, their family, their friends to the faith healers and they would come expecting a healing from Jesus. And since these faith healers were charlatans, when the real people who were sick would come up on the stage, they would not be healed. They'd still be paralyzed, blind, deaf. No healing would take place. Does this just make your blood boil? Now let it make you really mad. The faith healers would get around these non-healings by saying, well, the reason you weren't healed is that you don't have enough faith. I can do a good southern accent, can I? (laughs) If you had enough faith, then God would heal you. They would say, it's not my fault. It's not God's fault. It's your fault. God can't heal you because you don't have enough faith. I've got to tell you that one of the most cruel and selfish lies of these faith healers is that the people that they failed to heal, they would say they were sinful because of their unbelief and their lack of faith. Or they would call it their negative confession of faith by saying, well, I am lame. They go, well, that's just a negative confession. I could give you name after name after name of faith, fake uh, faith healers both men and women, who became incredibly rich. Many were exposed as frauds. Later, many died horrible deaths, never turning to Jesus. Alcoholics, hotel rooms surrounded by prostitutes, drugs, pills, tragic. And let's get back to our story in John 5 and the healing of this man. What's interesting in this story 
there seems to be no one observing this happening, this story. Jesus is not doing this in front of some crowd. It's just Jesus and this one guy, isn't it? The reason I tell you of all the fake healers and then the healing of Jesus is that for some of you, you have lost someone that you prayed and believed that they would be healed. You prayed a ton. Or maybe you even have some some problem that you have prayed for and God hasn't healed you. And maybe even the person told you that if you had enough faith, then you would be healed. But that's just not the case. Sometimes God says no. Or he says, wait. Or sometimes he says, yes, and they're healed. Now hear me. I, as a pastor, pray for people to be healed every day of my life. I've prayed for many of you. Sometimes we see healings and we thank God for that. And at the end of the day, any healing, isn't it really from God? If it comes by doctors and medicine or something we can't explain no matter if it comes from, comes from any of its source, we know if healing comes, it comes from God. Any healing ultimately comes from God. And we need to give the thanks for that. And we need to pray for people's healings. But sometimes, many times, God says no. And it's painful when he says no. But let me tell you, he's still a good God. And yes, we must exercise our faith. But let me tell you, sometimes God just says, no, I want you to carry this burden. And I would say that's most of the time. The apostle Paul asked God to heal him of a physical ailment. We don't know what it was, but listen to the apostle Paul as he describes it. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse eight. Concerning this, concerning his healing he's looking for, he says, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So that I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see Paul's response here? God, please heal me, God. But if you say no, I will take pleasure in my weakness, in my hardships, in my difficulties, Why does Paul say that? He says it for the sake of Christ. Now this is a hard teaching, but hear me. He says, for when I am weak, I am strong. How could that possibly be the case? Because when we are weak, we have nowhere else to go but to Jesus to lean on for our strength. But notice, this was just the first part of verse 9. Look at that little part of verse 9. We always pray for healing, and we should, but we always uh, pray, God, I want you, I want what you want for me because you know your plan and how I fit into your plan. You see, Jesus that day had walked up to that man lying on his mat. There were hundreds of people he could have healed that day, but he didn't. I mean, with the snap of his fingers or just a word, he could have healed them all. 
Why didn't he heal them all? Because of two things. Listen close. One, he always has a plan. We call it his providence, remember? His plan, and sometimes it means that he heals someone of cancer, and sometimes it changes things, and it's a miracle. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for this miracle. But sometimes he says no, or he says, wait, not yet. I want you to carry that suffering a little bit longer. And sometimes he tells us that we have to carry that suffering, listen to me, all the way to our grave. Listen, before I was a pastor, I had no idea the main amount of pain and suffering that every single family experiences. Life in this fallen world is difficult. I mean that death, cancer, job loss, failed marriages, infections, depressions, struggles, no work. Mental struggles, you name it. I've seen it. I've prayed for God to move and heal and work. And listen, sometimes he has. And it's amazing. I get goosebumps thinking about it. And sometimes he says no or wait. And I've seen people carry a burden I've prayed for all the way to their last breath. And I have felt the last beat of the heart many times as I put my finger. And I go, God, I prayed for healing. But you want to know what I've also seen that is even a bigger miracle. I mean that than just an immediate healing. This is bigger. I've seen Christians who are suffering with some pain or loss driven by that burden to rely on Jesus to carry them all the way to the end. And the amazing thing is that as they have relied on On Jesus, they have grown more and matured in their faith through the suffering. Listen, I won't begin to tell you I know exactly what it feels like. That you're suffering. Why you're hurting, I don't know. I know many of you are. Yet sometimes it hurts. Hurt is caused by our own actions sometimes. But I'm, I'm talking about when we don't understand why we're hurting emotionally or why we're battling cancer or old age or surgery that won't heal. But I do know this, that if you are in Christ Jesus and you have placed your faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord, he won't waste even a drop of the suffering. Not a drop. Listen to this quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has been ordained, that there are afflictions, that the sovereignty overrules them, and that the sovereignty will sanctify them all. Take take comfort. Talk about a big, soft pillow to lay your head on at night. This is at the heart of Reformed theology that God is in control. That he is sovereign and that we can trust in him no matter what. Only a God who is completely sovereign in the sense that Spurgeon understood him to be could inspire to write this. Paul writes this in Romans eight twenty eight. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In those he predestined, he also called. In those he called, he also justified. In those he justified, he also glorified. One day, one day, the pain will be gone. Amen? The hurt will be gone for those in Christ Jesus. The curse of sin will be gone. Death will be no more. The loneliness, gone. The tears, gone. We will see him in his glory and sin will be no more for those who are in Christ Jesus. But until then, in the in-between, as we wait in this fallen world, we must lean on Jesus. Get up, pick up your cross, and follow him to the very end. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.